This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. At first blush, it would seem wrong to even suggest that God would tempt people to sin. St. Thomas took careful pains to show that God doesn't cause sin, nor does he prompt anybody to commit sin. If it were true that God is the author of sin in any way, shape, or form, that would mean God is also a morally evil, efficient cause. You don't want to go there. Whereas intellectual creatures are the primary causes of sin, and God simply permits fallen human beings to do moral evil. So there seems to be a contemporary problem with the phrase of the Our Father, namely, lead us not into temptation. What does it mean? The Greek suggests there are two substantially distinct meanings of the word temptation in Greek, periamos, one being a difficult trial, but not a per se sin, and the other being a force coming from within us, or something coming from outside of us, encouraging the, the commission of sin, namely the evil one. And so that's, um, you know, it can refer then to testing uh, in the sense of determining a person's character, because when you resist, you grow in virtue. Mm -hmm. And so um, the word tempting doesn't quite mean in these contexts the sense of enticing to sin. It's clear in sacred scripture, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, St. Paul insists, quote, that God does not allow one to be tempted beyond one's strength and also provides a way to escape. So how in the heavens could he tempt us for it? It's also taught in James 1, 13, that God doesn't tempt. God cannot be, and also God can't be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Enticement to sin comes from one's own desires. Uh, many of the church fathers give us a kind of an interpretation of the verse when they teach, like my, my beloved St. Basil, it doesn't, does not, however, become us to seek by our prayers bodily afflictions. For Christ has universally commanded us uh, everywhere to pray that we enter not into temptation. But when one has already entered, it's fitting to ask from the Lord the power of enduring that we may have fulfilled in us those works. He doesn't, he that endures to the end shall be saved. Indeed, hmm? it's impossible for the soul of man not to be tempted. Therefore, he says, not pray that you not be tempted, but pray that you enter not into temptation. That is, that the temptation doesn't at last overcome you. Hmm? Um, other fathers say something more or less the same St. Augustine when we say lead us not into temptation what we ask is that we may not deserted by his aid either consent through subtle snares or yield to the forcible might of any temptation it's difficult to translate the Greek verb used by a single English word the Greek means do not allow us and do not, do not let us yield. Well, that's, that's right out of the Catechism 2846. Thus, the words that will lead us not into temptation should be understood in the sense of asking God not to let us fall into temptation. So, we, as the Catechism puts it to the same number, we ask God not to allow us to take the way that leads to sin. 
We're engaged in the battle between the flesh and the spirit. The petition implores the spirit of discernment and strength, unquote. Today, many people of many nations are not always learned in their understanding of Scripture, do not like the translation, and did not like the translation in many countries, lead us not into temptation, because it obviously sounds as if God tempts us to sin. Pope Francis was right in saying God is a loving Father who does not tempt us into sin, of course. God can and does, however, put us to the test, meaning uh, another meaning of temptation, you might say they're kind of both in. We'll see in a minute. Moreover, our Lord prayed that he be delivered from his trials, and the word is the same as temptation, in the Garden of Gethsemane. We must notice, however, that the answer to his prayer was, no, he had to suffer. He was asking to not have to drink that cup of suffering. No. Nevertheless, Italian, French, Spanish liturgy changed the translation to mean, do not let us fall into temptation. How did St. Thomas deal with the question? Well, we'll find in uh, Secunda Secunda 83.5. There's a temptation which hinders us from keeping God's will, and to this we refer when we say, lead us not into temptation, whereby we do not ask not to be tempted, but not to be conquered by temptation, which then is a little bit to be led into temptation. And then he goes on to say in the Summa Contra Gentiles, the third, third book, chapter 160, the opinion of Pythagoras, uh, pardon me, the, the opinion of Pelagians is evidently stupid. For they said that man in the state of sin is able to avoid sin without grace. But contrary to this is apparent from the petition in the Psalms, when my strength shall fail, do not forsake me. And the Lord teaches us to say, lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. And then in the Prima Secunde, question 1099, um, he starts out with St. Augustine, whoever denies that we ought to pray the prayer, lead us not into temptation, or that they deny it who maintain that the help of God's grace is not necessary for our salvation, but the gift of the law is enough for human will, ought without doubt to be removed beyond all hearing to be anathematized by the tongues of all. Hmm? Then Thomas goes through a series of, of uh, sentences basically trying to promote what, what is the teaching of what it means to say, lead us not into temptation, and that we have to ask God for help, etc., etc. The blessed uh, Charles de Foucault once wrote something like, he who can suffer in love will do things which this world thinks is impossible. Yet no one needs a special revelation to know that suffering bodily or psychological afflictions are evils. And if God's infinite love pushes the mind of the Christian to wonder how God can inflict evil directly or indirectly on his faithful people. Nevertheless, in Job 1, Job 2, 21, and verse 10 of the other, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall go back again. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We accept good things from God. Should we not accept evil? Second thing. Pure reason is faced with a mystery, but with divine faith. There's an answer given to us by Aquinas. Um, this is the first part of the infinite goodness of God, that he should allow evil to exist. 
but out of it produce good. Now, we know that when we're tempted with uh, physical problems, uh, psychological problems, uh, failures, problems, accidents, uh, sickness, health, all that stuff, that also is an occasion for temptations to sin too. They kind of coalesce. Physical and psychological problems and all that stuff. And then temptations, they can come too. You start to doubt God's love. You start to doubt God's help. You start to think God hates you. You start... We priests in the confessional and in the hospital ministry know very well how people suffer against God and get angry at God. And they tempt God. They tempt him. Show your power and cure me or I'll, I won't go to mass for 10 months. Something like that. That's the way the people of God sometimes work. Okay. So Thomas again uh, reminds us um, in this commentary to, to Timothy chapter 3, lesson 2. It should be noted that the desire to hurt is present in man himself. But the power to harm comes from God's permission. He does not permit the wicked to inflict as much harm as they would like, but he sets a limit. Hitherto you shall come and shall not go further, as Job says. And here you shall break your swelling, your swelling saves, and I'm talking to the evil one. So the evil harassed Job only as much as the Lord permitted. So too Arius did not harm the church only as the Lord permitted. And then in another place in the Contra Gentiles, 144, number three, we are to led to hear our troubles in patience, to bear our troubles in patience, pardon me, Although every created thing is from God and is good according to its nature, yet if something harms us or brings us pain, we believe that such harm, such comes from God, not as a fault in him, but because God permits no evil that is not for good. Affliction purifies from sin, brings low the guilty, urges on the good to love of God, if we have received good things from the hand of God, why should we not receive evil? Quoting Job again, 2.10. Job asks the rhetorical question, should we not accept evil? But he gives no reasons why we should. That God produces good from evil, that there are limits to the evils he permits, cannot always be known by experience in this life, as we know. St. Paul assures the new followers of Jesus, quote, God is faithful. He will not let you be tested beyond your strength. But with your testing, he will provide the way out so that you may be able to endure it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. However, for those enduring such trials, this provision of God, more often than not, doesn't seem to be the case experientially. Priors a certain faith in God's truth, the same faith that believes that the Blessed Sacrament is the body of Christ. The problem is mentioned in the Catechism in 164. Now, however, we walk by faith, not by sight. We perceive God as in a mirror, dimly, only in part. Even though enlightened by him in whom it believes, faith is often lived in darkness and can be put to the test. The world we live in often seems very far from the one promised by faith. Our experiences of evil, suffering, injustice, and death seem to contradict the good news. 
they can shake our faith and become a temptation against it. Again, Aquinas reminds us again um, in the Prima Secundae 87, for in the state of innocence, it would not have been necessary for anyone to make progress in virtue through painful exercise. Hence, the very fact that there's pain in such cases is traced back to original sin as its cause. As is well known, the quarantine imposed by state governments to quell the virus has produced many ill effects in the populace. Loneliness, depression men, among mental problems, heart complications, hypertension, increased smoking and eating, insomnia, drug abuse, suicides, loss of the sense of self-worth and the use of pornography. So a question arises in the minds of the faithful thinking Catholics, could God have created a better universe? And Aquinas does give an answer, but it's not very consoling, you know. Um, you know, in fact, he, he gives a reason why it's okay now. Then the next line, however, God could make other things or add other things to those he has made. And in that case, the other universe would be better. Unless one's a mystic or a victim soul who suffers for the sins of others, ordinary sinners who have physical and moral trials often find that their miseries are too great, last too long for a loving God to have permitted them. They feel the need to make deals with God, such as promising that if he takes the suffering or temptations away, they promise something special for him or for the church. Like elderly, likewise, elderly people in rest homes are filled with loneliness or pain, are unable to do anything, but lie in bed, often pray and pray devoutly for many months and years that death will end their misery, only to be disappointed the next morning. Likewise, parents and spouses suffer deeply when their child or spouse has cancer, slowly dying with no hope of a cure. Ultimately, professors and preachers often fail to instruct their flocks on the necessity to pray for the grace to suffer for the glory of God and to beg for the salvation of their friends and relatives when they are far from God. Implicit in the whole of the Our Father as well, as our theme lead is not in temptation, is precisely asking for the grace to deal with the physical, psychological evils of an inclinations to sin and endure the sufferings as well as the outcome, as, uh, as well as overcome temptations to sin, deliver us from evil, obviously. The evil of sin is properly uh, opposed to the uncreated good itself, since it is contrary to the fulfillment of God's will as well as contrary to the divine love by which God's good is loved for itself. Summa Theologiae 48.6. If God is neither directly the cause of sin, but permits or tolerates the evil of sin, is he the efficient cause of a lonely, painful, and sickly life? Or a contrary matter, is he the cause of coronavirus, the virus? Is, he, is not God supposed to protect his loved ones from sickness, unforeseen death, disasters? Does he merely allow people to suffer and does he directly cause these calamities of body of soul? On a much broader scale, why does he not answer prayers for healing? On a much larger scale, put an end to abortion, wars, floods, fires that destroy towns and cities. Why these evils exist after many intense prayers offered by millions of his followers is a perennial question, not easily answered. 
the teaching of the church and her catechism answers following scripture that original and personal sin have delirious consequences for persons and, sin and, and groups of people which produce these evils, both physical and moral. Paragraph 400. The harmony in which they found themselves, thanks to original sin, is now destroyed. Control of the soul's spiritual faculties over the body is shattered. The union of man and woman becomes subject to tense, tensions. Their relations marked by lust and domination. Harmony with creation is broken. Because of man, creation is now subject to the bond, bondage of decay. Finally, the consequence explicitly foretold for this disobedience will come true. Man will return to the ground, for out of it he was taken. Death makes its entrance into human history. And 401. After that first sin, the world is virtually inundated by sin. There's Cain's murder of his brother Abel, the universal corruption which follows in the wake of sin. Likewise, sin frequently manifests itself in the history of Israel, especially as infidelity to the God of the covenant and the transgressions of the law of Moses. Even after Christ's atonement, sin raises its head in countless ways among Christians. Romans 1, 18, 32, 1 Corinthians 1, 6, Revelations 2 and 3. So scripture and the church's tradition continually recall the presence and universality of sin in man's history. Going on in 401, what Revelation makes known to us is confirmed by our own experience. For when man looks into his own heart, he finds he's drawn toward what's wrong, sunk in many evils which can't come from a good creator, often refusing to acknowledge God as his source. Man also has upset the relationship which should link him to his last end. And at the same time, he's broken the right order that should reign within him, as well as between himself and other men and all creatures. End of quote. Since God cannot be the cause of sin, human beings are the primary and exclusive cause. God, on the other hand, is the primary cause of punishing disorder introduced by sin based upon his infinite justice, which has been flaunted by personal sin. So, what is it? Punishment, punishments are harsh realities that go contrary to our wills, disordered desires, false delights in apparent goods. They're not inflicted by God for their own sake, because if he delights in them, they are for something else, namely for imposing order on creatures, in which order the good of the universe consists. Summa Gentiles, chapter 144, number 10, smidgen from it. Some kind of evil, real or perceived, is inflicted in this life on the body or on the heart or the core of a person, but not only in this life, but the purification in the next, which is non-voluntary, and then by being simply endured with sinful results. That's from the Supplementum 2.2. Uh, Suffering is an experience of harms that differ in kind and degree. These harms causing sorrow could be harsh words from neighbor that humiliate us. Or worse, the limitation of freedom imposed on convicted criminals by the authority of the state. Physical pain from accidents and illnesses. Psychological pain from disappointments, failures, losses, 
death of friends, spouses, and the like, not directly from God, but mysteriously integrated in his providential governance for our personal benefit, and a worse burden of those sinning against him and continuing to sin against him. These ill effects of sin often arise from bad and mistaken behaviors that produce unwanted physical and psychological consequences, such as drinking and smoking too much alcohol. In our time, a slow progress of dying may inflict an inner confusion on a person, which adds to the burden and the sorrow of affliction. Furthermore, if someone can be inflicted with chastisements throughout life that remains purely punitive, simply endless, empty of personal meaning, except for being occasions for brooding and getting angry with God and self and others. There's a whole section on that in, the, in chapter 158 of the fourth book of the Summa Contra Gentiles. On the other hand, depending on one's attitude and cooperating with the insisting, assisting grace from God, Suffering can purify one's mind and heart by uprooting false motivation and desires and leading to a transformation of one's outlook on life. Punishment as purification is well received in faith can lead to aversion from disordered love of the things of this world and a deeper adherence and conversion to God. This results in a better ordered love of the goods of this world better still, a love of the divine gifts, bringing us a closer intimacy with God. Thus, one is enabled to accept the designs of God's providence with a more authentic desire to change one's life from lukewarmness to a more fervent love. That's somewhat found in the Secunda Secunda 24 on 4, my own words. This is the underlying petition to lead us not into temptation. And so the catechism reminds us that either new moral evils can flow from suffering or the reverse, a deeper desire for God with the acceptance of personal pain. 1501 from the catechism. Illness can lead to anguish, self-absorption, sometimes even despair, revolt against God. It can also make a person more mature helping him to discern in his life what is not essential so that he can turn toward what really truly is. Very often, illness provokes the search for God and the return to him. But not always, as we know. Faith reminds the disciple of the Lord Jesus of his abiding presence as God in, his one, in one's daily responsibilities. Therefore, God is in all things by his power, and as much as all things are subject to his power, he is present by it in all things, as all things are bare and open to his eyes. He is in all things by his essence, and as much as he's present to all as the cause of their being. To achieve one's ultimate destiny, as well as one's personal mission in this life, one also has to embrace the crosses of one's life as expressed in the pithy saying heard over and over again in churches, no cross, no crown. Some of these crosses can be simple inconveniences, irritating persons, serious physical pains, heartaches of the spirit, as I've already said. Those rare Christians who are highly, highly advanced in their relationship with God will often conditionally ask for a cross from God, and then they will soar in their prayer and apostolic life. 
Others not so highly advanced will sometimes request the same sufferings, only to sin more by presumption, due to ignorance of their limitations, which, of course, is the lack of humility. As a result, they won't soar in higher in virtue and grace. They're not ready for heroic trials like that. They thought they could shoulder great crosses, principally by their own efforts, secondarily with God's help. Their love for God and his will, perhaps from their own illusions about God, becomes diminished. If they fall into serious great sin, the infused virtue of charity will be returned through the sacrament of reconciliation, we know. And sometimes that's diminished in charity, will, or maybe sometimes a greater charity will come from the sacrament due to a more intense sorrow from having made such stupid and idiotic decisions. Supplementum 15.2. Nevertheless, Aquinas will teach us that the worst punishment God can inflict on people is not natural disasters, as bad as they are, but letting people continue to sin and become so hardened that they die repentant, unrepentant. So, lead us not into temptation, then, is meant to be an antidote against such an attitude. At the same time, the mystery is that in tolerating such difficult evils and trials of the Spirit, while it's absolutely certain that God can bring good out of these difficulties, though again, it's not immediately evident what that good is or will be in this life. Prima Secunde 79.4 on 1. My words, not his. As the Catechism reminds us again of God's infinite goodness. 3.11. Angels and men as intelligent and free creatures have to journey toward their ultimate destinies by their free choice and preferential love. They can therefore go astray. Indeed, they have sinned. Thus has moral evil immeasurably more harmful than physical evil enter the world. God in no way, directly or indirectly, the cause is the cause of moral evil. Now it permits it because he respects the freedom of his creatures and mysteriously knows how to derive good from it. Hmm? Almighty God, as uh, this is still the same number, for Almighty God, because he's supremely good, would never allow any evil whatsoever to exist in his works if he were not so all-powerful and good to cause good to emerge from evil itself. 3.12 says the same thing. In time, we can discover God and those of the mighty providence can bring good from the consequences of an evil, moral evil, caused by his creatures. Simple faith from the trials of daily life is required to affirm that God is producing something good from them without necessarily knowing how he's doing it or what that good is that he's doing. The evil of physical suffering, rather really distinct from the evil of sin, must be placed then within the context of the goodness of God, again, without being able to experientially understand what infinite goodness is of itself. The Catechism is not naive about the trials and sorrows of this life when it teaches of themselves, notwithstanding potentially good outcomes. These evils may often also cause tumults in people's life. Again, 15, 
1500, illness and suffering have always been among the gravest problems confronted in human life. In illness, man experiences his powerlessness, his limitations, his finitude. Every illness makes us glimpse death, end of quote. And as we know, this is me speaking, the journal of the spiritual life to heaven is called by St. Paul occasionally a war. All things considered, not an easy road either. It's traditionally called a battle with the world, the flesh, and the evil one. So an essential aspect of the good news then is the harsh reality called punishment, which goes against unruly human desires and dispositions that are called the fomes peccati, or first movements of sin, disorders that result from original sin. Besides past illegitimate desires and psychological dregs of sin come sinful dispositions that are ready to spring forth into sinful actions like lava from volcanoes. Uh, these interior upsurges are afflictions that not only come from within but emerge from the trials of daily life. And nevertheless, there's a call to steady one's life's course with the moral virtue of penance or satisfactory acts, namely prayer, fasting, works of mercy, which require efforts and it's their own hardships. The key that opens up the potential goodness of the physical and psychological evils of punishment, that is, then cooperation with the graces that accompany such punishment. Such cooperation can help restore a relationship with God, deepen an even existing bond with God. Rebelling against the punishment can, on the contrary, cause someone to turn away from God, intensify one's present distance from God even more. Also, one can so resist those graces leading someone to hate God. Or in the worst case, God may temporarily not even give grace to those who undergo suffering if they don't want his help in the first place. Uh, this matter, this latter situation exists when particular individuals have become hardened of heart by their love for sin. And there's something in the Prima Secunde 79.3 about that one. Nevertheless, given the fact that human beings have not angelic intellects or wills, so as to make absolute definitive choices, often after much pain and suffering, those in the state of resistance to God may still turn to him out of desperation, repent of an entire life of sin, which, of course, is another gift from God. This is why St. Thomas teaches us that, quote, God allows some to fall into sin, so that acknowledging their own sin, they might become humble, be converted, as Augustine says in the De Natura et Gratia. That's directly from, uh, uh, directly again from the Prima Secunde 75.9. Further, as a consequence of one friend suffering for another, God may also give graces of repentance to a great sinner to turn away from sin and adhere to God's offer of friendship. St. Thomas has some insightful things to say about this aspect of suffering then for others. And this is taken from the Supplementum 13.2, Sitcantra. It's written in Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens. And Thomas goes on, therefore, it seems. One can bear the burden of punishment laid upon another. Further, charity avails more before God than before man. Now, before man, one can pay another's debt for love of him. 
Much more, therefore, can this be done before the judgment seat of God. Why much more? Well, the power of charity and divine love in the soul has a certain efficacy when it comes to suffering from others, for others. As Aquinas teaches so brilliantly in the third part of this Summa Contra Gentilis 158. Now what we do by our friends, we do apparently by ourselves, because friendship, especially the love of charity, binds two persons together as one. Wherefore, as a man can satisfy God by himself, that is to say, pay the debt of sin back to God, so can he by another, especially when there's urgent need for it. For a man looks upon punishment which his friend suffers for his sake, as though he himself suffered it. And so he's not without punishment, seeing that he suffers with his suffering friend. And he suffers all the more, according as he is the cause of his friend's suffering. Again, the love of, of charity in him who suffers for his friend makes the satisfaction more acceptable to God than if he suffered for himself. For the former, uh, for the former comes from the eagerness of charity, while the latter comes of necessity. Hence, we infer that one man may satisfy the sins for another as long as both remain in charity. Wherefore, the apostle says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Me speaking. At the heart of punishment in general, then, is God's justice and his rights over human persons. Human, humankind's unreasonable tendency to choose the goods of this life against the law of God and reason and faith leads to punishment temporarily in this life, though not always, and in the next life, either eternally or temporarily in the next life. Again, the, the Catechism reminds us that even when this is 1472, uh, every sin, even venial sin, entails an unhealthy attachment to creatures, which must be purified either here on earth or after death in the state of purgatory. On the other hand, punishment can be reasonably self-inflicted with ascetical practices, such as prolonging prayer instead of wasting time on the Internet, Fasting or eating unappetizing foods, accepting harsh weather conditions, depriving oneself of sleep among the frustrations of one's will or the frustrations of traffic in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Doing personal penance makes satisfaction for previous sin. This can include works of mercy, either corporal or spiritual. These works are meant to inflict some kind of penalty on self in addition to helping others and to rectify the disorders introduced into one's spiritual faculties, be it the intellect adhering to error, or the will weakened by emotional <laughs> loves, follow right reason and faith, or the passions charming one away from what's reasonable and faith-filled. Restoring and strengthening virtuous behavior and rebuilding good moral habits and dispositions is one of the goals of the virtue of penance. One is attempting to prevent oneself from disobeying God's precept. This sums up the ascetical life of Christians who wish to grow in their intimacy with God, since sin violates God's rights over humankind. The church attempts to help her children grow in this virtue and make satisfaction from past sinning by reminding us of the obligation of doing penance, especially on Fridays of the year and during Lent, we might even include Advent as well. Lead us not into temptation also means we look then to God's grace 
to help us transcend our trials of pain and frustration. So the question is posed again, does God punish? Seems for a Catholic to be obvious, since the word in Greek and Hebrew is used throughout the Old and New Testaments. However, the, the, the final and even efficient cause of punishment can be obscure, I admit. On a personal level, punishment eliminates leftovers and the dregs of the forgiven sin. And as the Catechism of the, of the Church teaches us, that punishment relates to restoring one's inner life. The forgiveness of sin in 1473 and the restoration of communion with God entail the remission of the eternal punishment of sin. But temporal punishment remains. While patiently bearing sufferings and trials of all kind, and when the day comes of serenely facing death, the Christian must strive to accept this temporal punishment of sin as a grace. He should strive by works of mercy and charity as well, by prayer and the various practices of penance, to put off completely the old man and to put on the new man. End of quote. In conclusion, so when we pray, lead us not into temptation, what are we asking from God? We're definitely not asserting that God's tempting us to sin. But we're asking that we not endure trials because we know our weaknesses and inabilities to suffer with love are not all that strong. Uh, Jesus himself said the same thing, you know, take away the trial, but your will be done. But it's an act of humility to admit one's inability naturally to endure punishment and yet in God's providence is a great good to suffer with love and faith in divine providence. So we pray, lead us not into temptation, so that if we are tried, we will make the best of it. And as a result, we hope to become even closer to intimacy with God. Thank you. I was just wondering if you could say a brief word on, so of course you mentioned, say in the letter of James, how the Lord tests no one, he says, and we're taught in the Our Father by the Lord himself not to, to pray that the Lord not lead us into temptation. But in the Psalms, we ask that the Lord, at least in Psalm 26, that he would test us and even use the same word, to tempt us, to try us. Could you say a word on why in what way temptation or trial might be desirable so that we could pray for it? It's not either or, it's both and end. That would be the first thing that pops into my pea brain. And that means that there are times in our lives when we know we just simply can't take it. And so when we pray that particular psalm, we kind of pray with the idea that may, I hope I can live up to that someday. And then there may be occasions in our lives when we might need a good spanking from God. And we know it. And so we may, may ask for the grace to do penance. And that grace to do penance is in some way asking for a trial from God. Penance, you know, maybe extra prayers, going to a, like in the lay world, you know, going to an extra mass now and again during the week, that kind of thing. So it's it's a, a, a subtle interplay depending upon the circumstances of the person, depending upon the, the depth of a person's relationship with God. As I said, if you're a giant, the, the giants, not all, but many, ask for that. 
then there's a whole history behind that. I don't have the time to go into it. I hope that's enough. So. Hello. <laughs> Father, I was living and, and uh, assigned to live in Europe when some of this debate was happening, and I was in the Netherlands when they were changing the translation of Our Father, and mm -hmm. I, I really was kind of a failure in pastorally helping people understand because I didn't understand. So how would you have better than I did handle comments such as, I'm so glad the church is finally changing her understanding of how God works with us now, and what that meant is, People are only hearing the Our Father at Mass if they ever know. So it's not their rosary. They're thinking finally the Mass and the Church is changing. And I didn't, I didn't know what to say to that. Mm -hmm. Well, I wouldn't be able to either. I don't speak Dutch. That's the first. <laughs> that's the first giant problem I have. But then the second problem I would have is is that I would try to say, well, now. A lot of saints have been praying this, so it must mean something more than what you think it means. And certainly it can't mean that God wants to bring you into grave sin. He can't mean that at all. That would be the first thing I'd say. And then I'd say, well, um, sometimes, uh, sometimes some terrible things happen to me. And I'm immediately tempted to fall into sin, aren't I? You know, uh, you're tempted to get mad at God. You know, I've got cancer of the liver and I'm going to live for another two weeks. I'm angry at God. I got kids to raise, you see. Well, so, lead me not into the temptation of hating you, of despairing you, of lead me not into the temptation of this or of that, you see. So, it's a, as they say, it's a combination of either physical problems or sinful situations, temptations, etc. You're praying for that grace to overcome it. And that's what is traditionally always meant. If you would have known in St. Thomas's, um, in the book that's collated by somebody, I don't know who, the Catechism of St. Thomas Aquinas, he's got three pages explaining it, that anybody can read it, even a Dutchman. <laughs> Thank you, Father Basil. Um, you define temptation as either a difficult trial or a force coming within us, encouraging uh, a difficult situation. I was thinking about the words of Christ where he says, uh, pray that you do not undergo the test. Um, do not undergo temptation, right? So I guess um, a lot of the talk kind of focused on how to uh, handle affliction and temptation. Is there a practical for um, like a fostering of disposition or prayer in order to avoid temptation? Well, there are what we call external temptations of the flesh, etc., 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 and spiritual life enables us then to resist those temptations. Okay, and then there's the temptations that come from afflictions. Well, if we're not having them at the present time. And we pray for the grace to be able to dance with them when they come. You know? We do that in the Hail Mary. We just, uh, Hail Mary, for the pray for us now and at the hour of our death. Because we don't know if we're going to die very well. We might be miserable when we're dying. We might be screaming and yelling when we're dying. You know? Uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori had one hell of a time dying when he was going through, you know, but I presume all through his life he was praying that 
he would at least hold on to our Lord while screaming, which he did. So praying for a happy death, is, that, that's long-term prayer. And then short-term prayer, help me, help me uh, cooperate with the things that I can already do, since I'm not already in affliction, and help me to live to be help me to be led by you in ordinary things and to do things for the love of you in an ordinary way. So that when my turn comes to have to suffer insults and injuries and miseries and trials and difficulties, I'll continue to ask for your help and try to endure them for my soul. That'd be my suggestion. Thank you, Father Basil. Uh, I've been trying to understand or appreciate these lines. Um, you, in your talk, you use sin and evil, and it seemed to some extent interchangeably. So would it be appropriate to understand the last line, deliver me from evil, would be deliver me from my sin, my own sin, rather than an extrinsic evil? All of the above, both in, not out, out, both in. Because, as we know from experience, when we are afflicted, we're going to be tempted also against God, against people. Get out of my room, you idiot father. That happened when you're a hospital chaplain. I've been a hospital chaplain. I, I, I can think of this guy that I walked in the room. Get out of here. Get out of here. Driving me crazy. And the next day I walked in. And I told you to stay out of here. And then I waited two more days and I walked in and he says, I'm, I'm going through hell, Father. It's just awful. And so I then went up to him, and then I started talking to him. And then the next day, I got to give him absolution. No, no, I won the battle. But I had to, <laughs> I had to endure the insults and the injuries. It was tough, but I did it. Now we got all kinds of things like that happening. You know? Both in, both in, both in. Because I could have said, oh, the heck with you. I'm not going to see you again. No, 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 no. Hospital chaplains don't live that way. All right. <laughs> hey, Father Basil. Um, speaking of uh, punishing disorder as a result from divine justice and sin, would you think it is fair to say that the disorder that is caused within the soul from sin can then outflow into the faculties which influence the mental health of someone and their physical health? And if so, um, would encouraging someone to open themselves up to be more receptive to God's grace can potentially offer healing in this life, if not um, at least the strength to endure the suffering. Well, there are two kinds of psychological affliction. Some is purely physical, and that has to be borne with as much patience and kind. My mother suffered depressions for 20 years. They, they couldn't find out what was wrong. They did everything possible. You know, blah, blah, blah. And then there's psychological afflictions that come from sin that affects the intellect, the will, and the emotions. Uh, parents that are excessively harsh on their children give producing them a certain deficit. Uh, there's a name for that, uh, lack of affirmation. And then by the time they turn 30 or 40, they live in depression. They, they don't know why. Even if they're happily married, even if they're a multimillionaire, they still feel depressed all the time. You know? And then there are, uh, you know, then there are personal sins that people can commit that also inflict some psychological things on them. You see, so there's it's a little, it's very complicated, you know. And each requires, you know, different solutions and different ways of approaching with it. And it would take too far a field to go into precisely how you'd go about doing it. But that's 
kind of a good principle to keep in mind. Not all psychological problems are necessarily the result of personal sin. Okay. So there's also, yeah, there's also um, exorcism, oppressions from the evil one, but that has to do with exorcism and all. That's another, another category. Okay. All right, let's thank Father Bass. Pleasure.